George B. McClellan, Sword and General Fund. The undersigned has been solicited by many in the Army and citizens of this city to be the recipient of a fund as above set forth. All monies sent to me for such purposes will be applied as per request. It is desirable that a fund of at least $200,000 may be raised as a token of gratitude for the services of that able commander, Louis Philip, Number 2 Murray Street, New York. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 10. I'm excited because I have a listener. I mean, a listener-listener, not only someone who listened to an episode, but someone who listened to all the episodes. I never thought that would happen, and yet, here we are. Shout out to Martin. Oh, hey, speaking of listening, I'm going to start saying that thing that everybody says. I know it's annoying, but please, if you enjoy the show, go to iTunes, take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps get the word out. Thanks. So, a little warning. If you're new to the show, don't start here. This episode is an Olympic swimming pool full of sewage, and if you've never swum before, you can't just dive in and expect to do a perfect breaststroke. you got to work your way up. Go back to episode 5, which is the beginning of this series on the Syracuse mayoral elections of 1868. Or don't. Start with episode 8. I'm particularly proud of that one. Just don't friggin' start with this one. Alright, so the date is February 17th, 1868, And we're seeing what the Democratic newspaper, the Daily Courier and Union, has to say about its candidate. Now, even though it's the day before the Syracuse mayoral election, I consider this to be the climax of the series. This is why I spent such a ridiculous amount of time researching and presenting such an obscure topic. I've seldom found articles which I so strongly feel deserve a voice. And when I use the word deserve, I want you to take my meaning. This shameful rhetoric that vacillates between elegant flourishes and hateful sneering bile, it's like Rococo woodwork marbled with shit. But the worst part is that it's nauseatingly familiar, and I mean that literally. I got mildly nauseated at times. Reading this is the narrative equivalent of the uncanny valley. Now that term usually refers to faces, but in this case it's remarkably apt because this narrative has an aspect. I see it in my mind's eye, leering and lurching and staggering and sneering and taking an entitled swing at everything it doesn't like, seemingly without one iota of self-awareness. It's a narcissist and a fucking bully, and I despise bullies. If you can listen to this, this abhorrent filth, and not hear echoes, then I don't know what to say to you. 
because I hear this reverberating through a century and a half and coming through loud and clear in our modern discourse, or lack thereof. I hear it in the way we talk about race, in the way we refuse to talk, in the way we argue, in the way we denounce. And for that reason alone, it deserves to be given full throat. I want people to hear this. On the bright side, remember last time when I said we ain't going to have any fun with this one? Well, happily, I was mistaken. I had a lot of fun researching the references, which presumably were oblique to begin with and are now obscured by 150 years of cultural senescence, and I look forward to sharing my quirky findings with you. But also, we're going to have a little fun, or at least stress relief, with the ghastly rhetoric itself. I've invited my old friend Jules to give us verbal cues when something awful is coming up. Hey Jules, how's it going? You ready? This is some fucked up repugnant shit. It sure is. Let's get to it. Note how the courier warms up with some broad, sweeping generalizations about its candidate, just like the journal did for its candidate. After that, it moves on to some tedious details about the minor elections, which I almost didn't include, but I thought it was important to show that both sides encouraged voters to vote the straight ticket by linking the local struggle to the grand struggle for the soul of the nation. Syracuse Daily Courier and Union, Syracuse, New York, Monday morning, February 17, 1868. Never have the democracy of Syracuse presented for the suffrages of the people at a local election a stronger ticket, or one more worthy of support, than that now at the head of our columns. Elsewhere we have spoken of the claims of our candidate for mayor, bold, honest, courageous, energetic and successful, popular and respected, he arouses all the zeal of the democracy in his support. Of the other candidates on the city ticket, it suffices to say, as it can be truly said, that each of them possesses peculiar qualifications for the discharge of the offices for which he is proposed. They all, Misters Sherlock, McGuire, Shumway, Wishoon, Norton, Simon, and Bratt, come up to the true Jeffersonian standard of fitness. They are all honest and capable. They all possess hosts of friends whose personal exertions are thus aroused in behalf of the ticket. The same remarks apply to the candidates on the ward tickets, one and all of the gentlemen named for supervisors, Mr. Avery, Foth, Knoxon, Jordan, Filer, Ostrander, Bassett, and Denick. Our space will only permit us to say that they successfully challenge comparison in fitness for the highest responsible office of supervisor with their competitors. The important interests of the city will be more than safe in their hands. For aldermen, no better men could possibly be named than Misters McKeever, Kirsch, Bruin, Stevens, Glenn, Handwright, and Stanton. Some of them have already tested their fitness in the discharge of the office. The others will do so when elected, as a majority of them will certainly be. We need say nothing in behalf of the candidates for school commissioners. Misters Leach and Welsh have filled the office with great credit. Mr. Messenger needs only the opportunity to give equal satisfaction. The whole ticket is one which deserves to be, and will be, triumphantly elected. A Noble Sentiment the Standard of Saturday published an extract of a letter from the pen of General John A. Green, Jr., 
our candidate for mayor, that should be preserved and handed down to future generations. Oh, really, motherfucker? Well, let's just see what we can do about that. Hugh here, obviously. I just had to break in there. I just love the fact that they're just daring me to get this out there and preserve it for future generations, which is exactly what I want to do, although for obviously different reasons. Anyway, continuing on. The sentiment breathes with the spirit of patriotism and love of country. It is as follows. The true Union men are not those who threaten devastation and slaughter, but they who invoke the persuasive influence and power of peace. Getting Scared The Standard don't want any Republican to leave the city on Election Day. It says, Every voter will count this time. True, Mr. Standard. You will need every vote you can raise and then be defeated by an overwhelming majority. Your goose is cooked, so says the mechanic, the laboring man, the merchant, the artisan, the adopted citizen, the native-born, and nearly everybody you meet. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Yep. The Journal and Standard have much to say about General Green's predictions of evils to result from the late war. But tell us, Mr. Editors, have not his predictions proved true after all? Is not our debt so great that, in spite of unexampled taxation, it increases even now twenty millions per month? Are not the people weighed down by taxes upon all they eat, drink, or wear? Are not our workmen without labor, our mechanics without employment? Is not our trade, our commerce, and our manufactures well-nigh destroyed? And where is the Union? Let the vacant seats of the representatives in Congress of ten states answer. Let the Negro conventions of the South answer. Let the millions spent in maintaining military despotism in the South answer. Who, we ask, has profited by the war? Who but the Negroes whom it has put in office, and the bondholders it has enriched? These, and these only, have gained by the war. The people are toiling and saving and struggling and suffering in order that millions of Negroes may be supported in insolent idleness by Freedmen's Bureau, and that the greedy bondholders may be paid in gold. Oh, what a wicked man is General Green. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Yeah. The Question of the Hour if Charles Andrews is tomorrow elected mayor of Syracuse, it will be proclaimed far and wide as an endorsement of the debt-increasing, labor-oppressing, negro-protecting policy of the rump Congress. But this will not be. The same popular current which swept away the radical ticket last fall will, with greater volume, overwhelm it tomorrow. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. You said it. Twenty million dollars! Such is the official statement of the present monthly increase of the national debt. Yet we are asked tomorrow to renew our support of the men by whom, and the measures by which, the resources of the country are being thus wasted for the benefit of idle and vicious Negroes. Cool, isn't it? The Difference those who are in favor of Congress consuming all its time and the treasure of the country in legislating for the Negroes to the... 
Hugh here. We lose a couple of lines because the end of the page got cut off. Now before I continue at the top of the next column, I have a little challenge for you. Listen extra carefully to this next bit. I want to see if you notice something that went right over my head when I first read it. I'm going to be coming back to this in a big way next episode. The Peace Letter of General Green As the journal and standard takes so much pains in publishing extracts of General Green's Peace Letter of 61 and have taken extra pains to extract extracts of that letter, we will furnish the letter and that portion they have omitted. The general has no hesitancy whatever in reproducing the letter, which we hope our readers will carefully peruse. Here it is. Letter of John A. Green, Jr. to the publisher. Peace or War? To D.J. Halstead, publisher of the Syracuse Courier and Union. My dear sir, it is not my habit to notice or repel the ordinary attacks of a partisan press, but having been denounced in the most virulent manner as a traitor and scorning to defend myself by prosecutions for libel, I deem it due to myself and the friends who agree with me in opinion to make an explicit declaration of my feelings and views upon the unhappy divisions which afflict our common country, the public can then judge intelligently of the justice of the charges. And first, let me say I will counsel and will practice no violation of law, no subversion of or factious opposition to constituted authorities. At the same time, in spite of clamor and attempted terrorism, I shall ever claim to form, express, and maintain my own judgment upon the measures, policy, and conduct of the administration of the government. I have ever revered and still love the constitution of my country and the flag of our fathers, but I still claim the same right which American citizens have exercised at all times, alike in peace or war, to criticize and approve or condemn the acts of the public servants. What is the condition of our country? Civil war, the most bloody, desolating, and terrible of all wars, actually exists. The greatest and direst of curses ever inflicted upon a nation is impending over us. The din of arms is already drowning the hum of honest industry. Heavy and burdensome taxes are being levied upon us, and weapons are preparing on every side wherewith to shed the blood of brethren. Life, property, the labor of every citizen is at stake in such an issue. In so fearful a moment, it becomes us as lovers of constitutional liberty and advocates of the right of constitutional government to consider calmly and fully what is our position and what are our duties, and to lift our voices in an urgent advocacy of the restoration of peace to our afflicted country. Impartial history, when it shall record these events, to the shame of our nation, will declare that civil war seemed the object of the administration and of the leaders of the Republican Party, and that both studiously avoided the paths of peace. You and I, sir, have ever been loyal to the Constitution of our country, loyal to the interests of every state in our Confederacy, loyal to every section and the entire Union, loyal to the flag of our fathers and the hopes of mankind. 
Those who now denounce us as traitors in past times have derided us as union savers. For years they have sullenly nullified the Constitution, resisted the execution of the laws, and encouraged those who pronounced the Union an accursed bond. Yet they now claim to be par excellence Union lovers. The Southern states had not trenched upon Northern rights, nor denied our equality, nor sought to exclude us from enjoying the common property, nor insulted our social and religious character, nor stolen our property, nor organized invasions of our soil, nor sought to stir up insurrection in our midst and to apply the torch to our peaceful homes then proposes to carry on, unless soon and sternly forbidden by the voice of an outraged people, a war which must rival the bloodiest and most desolating in all the world's records, and all for the sake of Negro emancipation. Let the white men of the North calmly consider the causes and count the cost of the war. It is they who are to be beggared by taxation, ruined in their property, and drafted off by hundreds of thousands to the battlefield to murder or be murdered by their brethren of a common country. The American people of this generation do not know what war is. They cannot realize its sufferings. They cannot anticipate its horrors. War among 30 millions of the most chivalrous, ingenious, brave, disciplined, and martial free people the world ever saw must present scenes of terrible tragedy such as the most hardy will shudder to contemplate. This is the entertainment to which we are invited. This is the price we are asked to pay for the liberation of the Negro and his elevation to civil equality with the white man. When we are called upon to forget our principles, to fling aside all that we have hitherto professed, to disregard the claims of our southern brethren to fraternity and equality, and to hurry forward upon the impulse of homicidal excitement in support of a war policy against brethren of a common ancestry, we should first pause and consider our duty to ourselves, to our families, to our country, and our God. This I would do in the hope of thus arresting the destruction of human life and renewing the bonds of the Confederacy. Our state legislatures should demand peace and concession. Our journalists and the peace-loving population of our great commercial centers should urge the demand in every legitimate form. All classes of the people should especially guard themselves against the sinister influence of parties interested in war, while the country, its commercial, industrial, and financial interests, and the people everywhere must suffer from the effects of civil war. There are leading managing politicians in the country who will profit amid the general distress, whose interests will bias them and make them cry still louder for war. These are they who would hope for, or already possess, profitable contracts for the supply of arms, contracts for the supply of provisions, contracts for the supply of naval or military stores, contracts for the supply of transports, contracts for vessels to increase the navy, contracts necessarily attendant upon a protracted war waged by hundreds of thousands of men by land and sea.
New York has already contributed her millions and must wring millions more from the hands of honest toil or an oppressed commerce to enrich these vandals who, under a specious pretext of public good, destroy the republic and decry the opponents of civil war as traitors to their country and their country's flag. But there are other considerations affecting especially the preservation and the safety of the liberties of the North itself, which should weigh in favor of the policy of peace. At all times a large standing army is to be deprecated, and history has taught us always to apprehend military despotism as the concomitant and result of internal warfare. Thus, by every lawful and peaceful means left to the opposition, even if this unjustifiable war be not discouraged, impeded, and stopped, the constitutional freedom of the country will be maintained. At present we are in the first fever of excitement. This must soon subside. Bloodshed will revolt our people. Financial distress and heavy taxation will complete the cure. The more popular the war today, the more odious and repulsive it will appear hereafter. Then the reaction will be perfect. Peace will ensue, and Christian men and lovers of their country will have triumphed. The conservative sentiment of the country has been almost unanimous in demanding from the party in power an adjustment of our difficulties by peaceful means. No effort has been made by the administration or the Republican Party. Every effort for a peaceful settlement has been repudiated and condemned. Upon the Republican Party, with its principles of sectionalism and aggression, will rest forever the responsibility of breaking up the American Union of States. The fundamental doctrine of our political system is that governments can only derive their just powers from the consent of the governed. Eight millions of white men cannot be coerced to accept a government they repudiate or hate by all the armaments of all the powers of Christendom. Why, then, undertake so palpable an impossibility? Why endeavor to do so flagrant a wrong? Fifty years of war the expenditure of hundreds of thousands of lives and of hundreds of millions of money, far from reducing to subjection the men of the seceded states, fighting as they believe in behalf of their liberties, their families, and their homes, will only end in a permanent separation to be recognized by us hereafter. Or, if the most sanguine expectations of the war are realized, they can only be held with the large and expensive standing army as subjugated provinces. Where then will be the union of our fathers? Where then the freedom of America for which their fathers and ours alike pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor? Where then the independence and universal liberty which they planted amid suffering and enriched by their blood? Where then that glorious galaxy of American states, the hope, the pride, and the exemplar of the world? How then would the spirits of a Washington and a Jefferson and other patriot sires, long since gone to their rest, could they revisit the scenes of their labors and sacrifices, weep over the melancholy spectacle of their subjugated kindred? For myself I shudder and recoil from the thought 
This is the extent of my treason, and if to feel thus be a traitor, I dread not to bear the reproach. I fear not to repeat the emphatic language of Patrick Henry to those who, on another great occasion, raised the malignant outcry of treason. If this be treason, make the most of it. Seeing in this civil war confirmation strong as holy writ of the truth of democratic principles and the evils of a departure from them, even if all parties be swept by the preternatural excitement of the day into a policy of war and subjugation, I have no hesitation in declaring, whatever the consequences to myself, that I can never sustain the policy of conquering and holding subject any state, north or south, can never become a party to the subjugation of millions of white citizens to the will of other millions. To use again the words of a great statesman, it should seem, to my way of conceiving such matters, that there is a very wide difference in reason and policy between the mode of proceeding on the irregular conduct of scattered individuals or even of bands of men who disturb order within the state and the civil dissensions which may, from time to time, on great occasions, agitate the several communities which compose a great empire. It looks to me to be narrow and pedantic to apply the ordinary ideas of criminal justice to this great public contest. I do not know the method of drawing up an indictment against a whole people. I cannot insult and ridicule the feelings of millions of my fellow creatures. I really think that for wise men this is not judicious, for sober men not decent, for minds tinctured with humanity not mild and merciful. Hugh cutting in midstream here. In case you're wondering, that quote was from Edmund Burke's speech on conciliation with America, given on March 22, 1775. Nice flourish of rhetoric, huh? Okay, back to Green's letter. As a supporter of John C. Breckinridge and the Maryland Institute platform in the last election, I would invoke a union of all the supporters of Stephen A. Douglas, of John Bell, and of every patriotic citizen, with ourselves in the work of staying civil war and restoring peace. In such a holy labor we should know no distinction drawn from our past differences. In such a cause I would follow any leader. Let all those who adhered to parties opposed to abolitionism and favorable to the just rights of every state in this once happy and united confederacy band together at the North and demand with one voice that this struggle shall cease, and New York, the first of the states, which will be, has already been, called upon to make the greatest sacrifice, and which must receive the greatest damage from this war, should be the first in which a united effort of all opposed to civil strife and consequent disunion should be boldly made. And shall not you and I, addressing our fellow Democrats and the constitutional men of New York, exclaim, in demanding peace and opposing war, you are not exercising your lawful right? Nay, more, discharging your plain duty as citizens, vindicating your principles, and obeying the dictates of humanity, patriotism, and liberty. 
The sober second thought of the people will sustain you, and our bleeding country, when rescued from her frightful peril, will thank and reward you. Thankful for the space you have kindly allowed me in your columns, I am, yours very truly, John A. Green, Jr., Syracuse, New York, May 27, 1861. The man who got up the articles on General Green in Saturday's journal is in a heap of trouble. He has sucked so long at the public crip that his digestion has become very impaired. Hence, being somewhat troubled with the nightmare, he has become a little bilious and has, of necessity, been compelled to disgorge a little of his spleen. Hugh here. If you're anything like me, you're curious about that term, public crip. I did a lot of digging, and I found a couple of dozen instances of that printed in articles from the early 1800s to the, I believe, early 1900s. It took me a while to get my head around the meaning of this term, and once I did, I thought, wow, why did this fall into disuse? We don't really have a word for this today. It's the trough at which recipients of nepotism feed. In other words, it's sort of the equivalent of the public teat, but instead of people on the dole, it applies to seekers of political office. Go to the show notes to see an excerpt from a 1922 article that uses it in context. All right, back to it. Working men of Syracuse, vote tomorrow for the friend of the laborer, Vote for a man who is opposed to high taxes. Vote for John A. Green, the man who ever has and ever will respond heartily to your calls for aid and assistance, and who is in deadly enmity with all who seek personal aggrandizement at the expense of the poor man's pocket. The journal, as usual, confines itself to the dead issues of the past entirely. When speaking of our candidate for mayor, not a word has it to say of the live issues of the day, not a word of the future, but in accordance with its usual custom of falling in with wind and wave, it simply prates of loyalty to the government. Democrats, you all know what that loyalty means. It means perpetuity in office at all hazards for themselves. It means plunder for the Republican Party and its friends. And it means a deadly, uncompromising war to all who oppose its damnable policy. Citizens, tomorrow you are to say which you will have for the next year, a city governed by a man in every way capable and efficient, a man who looks to the interests of all alike, and who will carry to the office a dignity and a courtesy, coupled with kindness and charity to all, or whether you will have this city governed by radical wire-pullers in the interests of the Albany lobby and for the furtherance of black Republican ideas. The editor of the journal has the unequaled audacity to speak of the proprietor of this paper as the tool of the man the Democrats tomorrow are going to make mayor of this city. Now, leaving it for the public to judge of the wit and poignancy of this argument, the proprietor of this paper would say that in his estimation it would be a thousand times greater honor to be considered the tool of John A. Green— a gentleman of honor and decency, 
than to be the cat's paw footstool and dirty worker in general of the party of moral ideas and loyal sentiment as the editor of the journal is and ever has been. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. You ain't lying. How soldiers will vote, journal. They will vote for a man who is in favor of keeping the peace that their years of labor, toil, and privation have won. They will not vote for a man whose party seeks to undo all that their brave and heroic sufferings have accomplished. The soldier fought for the preservation of the Union, not for the supremacy of the nigger, and they are going to vote for a man who is in favor of the preservation of the Union. The glorious victory of last fall for the democracy shows that the people are tired of this long and weary waiting for peace and prosperity to return to our country. Keep the ball rolling and let Syracuse show to the people tomorrow that she fires the first gun for freedom and justice and that the black and tan party must henceforth take a back seat. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Yep. Reader, are you in favor of Negro suffrage? You are not, but Charles Andrews is, and in the Constitutional Convention not only voted in favor of it, but against allowing the people to vote upon the proposition separately. If you vote for him, you vote for Negro suffrage, not alone in the South, but here in New York. Who is in favor of giving up the South to the Negro, of making Negroes its governors, legislators, and congressmen, nay, one of them our president or vice president? Let all such vote for Charles Andrews. Who desires to give the Negro the... Hugh here. Lost a couple of lines at the end of the column again. Skipping ahead to the next one. This next bit isn't about the election, but it is absolutely about the election. Look at the way they point to Grant's despicable behavior as though to say, see, the moral people do it too, so it's not bad that we do it. Also, look out for an exotic word. Oh, and Jules has something to say. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. <laughs> oh yeah, here it is. General Grant in the character of Pharaoh. General Grant proposes to be Moses of the Negroes, but he is Pharaoh of the Jews. His sweeping ukase against that class of our citizens grates harshly upon civilized ears. Pharaoh drove the Hebrews away by his persecutions and then tried to get them back in order to reconstruct them. What his fate was, with his army and staff and horses and chariots, is well known. He was overwhelmed as the modern Pharaoh will be. Headquarters, 18th Army Corps, Department of Tennessee, Oxford, Mississippi, December 17, 1863. General Orders Number 11. The Jews, as a class, violating every regulation of trade established by the Treasury Department orders, are hereby expelled by the Department within 24 hours from the receipt of this order by post commanders. They will see that all this class of people are furnished with passes and required to leave, and 
anyone returning after such notification will be arrested and held in confinement until an opportunity occurs of sending them out as prisoners, unless furnished with permissions from these headquarters. No passes will be given these people to visit headquarters for the purpose of making personal application for trade pursuits. By order of Major General Grant. Hugh here. One of the funny things about reading blurry old newsprint is that when you run across an obscure word, you just assume that you're reading it wrong. I spent several minutes scratching my head over what I thought was U-K-A-S-E. Finally, I googled it and I found that, yes, that's right, U-K-A-S-E is an edict of the Russian government. All right, back to it. To the Democrats of Syracuse. Ye Democrats of Syracuse, gird on your armor strong. Use all your power to give the right dominion over wrong. Act well your part in this small strife, this mimic battle scene. And go tomorrow to the polls and vote for John A. Green. Vote for the man who boldly said, War is the greatest curse that immolates the bravest men and bleeds a nation's purse. To keep the Union tightly bound, let all coercion cease. No other tie is half so strong as Christian love and peace. Vote for the man who stood by you, though liberty and life were daily threatened by the base creators of the strife, who loved this nation's flag too well to dye it in the blood of those who fell on either side, the warriors brave and good. He foresaw that wives and children, they would be dying for bread, while their husbands, fathers, brothers would be with the unknown dead. He knew the loyal radicals would live up to their creed and satisfy their soul's desire, their jealousy and greed. They called him traitor, for he said, Respect a people's rights. I call a traitor one whose words but bitterness incites, who said, though southern people should confess they're in the wrong, we'll show them by our arm of might they must respect the strong. I but remind you of these things, they must not be forgot. Remember, friends, how true he was, and now forsake him not. Ye Democrats of Syracuse, on you he has a lean. Then go tomorrow to the polls and vote for John A. Green. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Oh yes, to say the least. If you are in favor of high taxes for the poor man and low taxes for the rich bondholder, if you are in favor of the ruinous and degrading policy of the disgraceful body of men who are in council in Washington, if you are in favor of the Negro and long for a black man's government, if you are in favor of another civil war, vote for Andrews, a man who is a leader in the party which avows such a policy as his also, and who is a delegate to the convention which hopes to place another four years' yoke of tyranny upon our necks. Hugh here. Note how in this next piece the writer says that Green does not own or control the courier. That's interesting because there are a lot of assertions to the contrary both at the time and subsequently. Again, there seems to have been a lot of historical confusion on that point. 
I suspect that the Republican newspapers exaggerated the degree to which Green controlled the Courier. It's safe to say, though, that at the very least, there was a hearty synergy between the Courier and Green. After all, as we've seen, Green was massively influential in politics, in business, and in his military career, and the Courier provided an excellent mouthpiece. The Journal of Saturday published a large amount of silly twaddle and personal abuse, which they call argument, all of which is about as near the truth as the editor of that paper usually gets. He has been often told in these columns that Mr. Green does not now, nor has he ever, owned or controlled in any manner this paper, and still he publishes what he knows to be a falsehood. Of such a character are the men that run this very loyal party and have the impudence to call themselves its leaders. The official record of John A. Green is without a blemish. No man in the state stands higher as an officer, a soldier, and a gentleman. No man in the state is more popular among his friends and no man more fitted to govern this city in a spirit of justice and with liberality and fidelity to the interests of all. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. I know, right? Democrats. The enemy are terrified and disheartened. Their ranks are demoralized, and already they concede a defeat on tomorrow. Let General Green have a majority that will plunge them still deeper in despair and show that the people are tired of black Republican tyranny and Negro supremacy and resolve that this government is to be a government of white men. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. <laughs> yeah. John A. Green was in favor of peace when peace would have saved this country hundreds of thousands of lives and millions of your money. And he is now in favor of peace when the Black and Tan Party are trying their very best to keep up the war by their endeavors to make this a black man's government. The Republican Party has saddled upon this country an enormous debt under which it groans and sweats and vainly seeks to free itself. Their ruinous, degrading policy has stagnated trade, imperiled the nation's credit, and almost smothered national honor and dignity. Vote for a man tomorrow who is opposed to this policy and who will do his best to defeat and check these radicals in their mad and ruinous career. Democrats the issue of tomorrow will decide on which side you are to stand, on the side of decency, of justice, of humanity, or on the side of plunder, tyranny, and despotism. From three of our large cities, the cheerful news comes of democratic victories. Let the central city add her name to the list. The people of the whole state are looking to you to keep this city upon the list of the redeemed. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Uh-huh. Here it is. I have had too much this of this. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Uh it uh mm, uh Oh, I'm sorry. Did I break your concentration? I didn't mean to do that. Please. Continue. What's the matter? Oh, you were finished. Oh, well, allow me to retort. 
This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. It bears repeating. So, we good to continue? Hey, that's cool in the game. Alright, continuing on. I have had too much of this nigger business, said a citizen to us last fall. He had voted steadily till then with the destructives, but he could stand it no longer. There are a great many like him, and the number is increasing every day. These men will vote the Democratic ticket tomorrow, and they will defeat Mr. Andrews. Hugh here. Check out this whiny little gem. Mr. Andrews has been mayor twice already and is now a member of the Constitutional Convention. So is Mr. Corbett. Would not a division of the honors be fair, gentlemen? Wah, 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 wah. Yeah, that had to be the lamest of all of the articles I've read on this subject. Anywho, back to it. General Green will be the mayor of Syracuse. Mark our prediction. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Dude, no argument here. Who voted for the right of equality of the Negro with the white man in the Constitutional Convention? Charles Andrews. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. You bet. Who wants the Negro to be put into our workshops and factories and labor side by side with our white working men and mechanics? Charles Andrews. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Yeah. To the Courier, it is admitted that throughout the country, in all the towns and cities of the North, there is much complaint and suffering from lack of employment and stagnation of business. Cannot some remedy be suggested? Mechanic. Answer. Turn out of office the men and the party who have so administered the government as to cause the evils under which the country suffers. Elect men who will give some attention to the interests of white men, and who will not spend all their time in contriving how to support the Negroes of the South in idleness. We know no other remedy. Begin with electing General Green. Who favors the bondholder and wants the poor man to pay his taxes? Charles Andrews. The Candidates. Whoever knew John A. Green, Jr., untrue to the interests entrusted to his care? What friend ever asked of him a favor in his power to grant that it was denied? What poor man ever appealed in vain for his assistance? When did he refuse to aid the unfortunate? Who, in his time, has contributed more to the prosperity of the city? We grant, with pleasure, the personal merits of his competitor— we would not, if we could, detract from them. While we do so, we yet proudly proclaim not less of worth for the candidate of the democracy. Hugh here. Now this one coming up has to be the most eyebrow-raising of all the articles. The Police Force The Journal of Saturday could not refrain from pitching into our police department, which enjoys the reputation of being the most efficient body of men ever appointed to guard the lives and property of our citizens. We would like to have the journal, or any of its readers, state how many safes have been cracked and carried off during the past year. 
For several years, and up to the time that the present police force was put on, breaking of safes and plundering them of their contents was almost of daily occurrence. But the past year we have not been called upon to chronicle a single case of the kind. The police department, under the guidance and direction of Chief Thomas Davis, was never in better condition since the city had a police. The journal is aware of the fact. Still, to carry out the instructions of its masters, it makes an assertion in regard to the police, which is untrue, and the journal knows it to be so. What the fuck? Safe-cracking? That's something I grew up seeing in movies, but I never thought of it as a real concern. I did a lot of digging for articles about safe-cracking in Syracuse newspapers in the 1860s, and I found a lot on safes being cracked throughout the country, but not particularly in Syracuse. There was one big one in 1865 where the provost marshal's office was robbed and the safe was cracked. There were a couple of unsuccessful attempts. There was one other high-profile safe cracking in 1868, but that was in August, several months in the future. You better believe I'm going to do an episode on safe cracking in August. For now, though, suffice it to say, this is a textbook example of the media using an arbitrary number in an attempt to present a correlation between two unrelated events. Although I hasten to add the caveat that I could be full of shit. I mean, there could be other safe cracking events that I missed in my search, and there could have been something wonky about the police force previously, so who knows what I'll discover in future digs. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Yupper. The Democratic Platform. The True Restoration of the Union. No more Freedmen's Bureaus to encourage the ignorance and vice of Negroes. No military despotisms. Consequent reduction of taxation, a white man's government, economy and public expenditure, diminution of the public debt, the same money for the people and the bondholders, peace, plenty, and prosperity. The importance of the contest. Democrats, remember that the election tomorrow has a meaning far above and beyond any mere personal issues. We know that regard for the candidates animates you with more than usual zeal, and that you long for the success of the ticket with more than ordinary unanimity. But let the thought that your victory tomorrow will impart new vigor and courage to your friends everywhere in the coming general battle between Negroism and the democracy. Let that thought, we say, stir you, if possible, to a greater and more determined effort than you ever made before. Let nothing relax your labors, or... Hugh here, lost another couple lines, continuing on. Alright, hold on to your hats, because this one has the most dense assortment of oblique contemporary references yet. How do you like the Democratic nomination for mayor? Standard. To Major Mose Summers, I thank you, a representative man. Good. I like that. Likewise, the nomination. It makes me smile to hear an old comrade like Mose complain of the nomination. Come, Mose, while we are on good terms, let us go down and see the general and get a smile of good loyal cognac duly paid. Come, go now. Don't say wait until after election. Never put off tomorrow what should be done today. 
you know that he is to be mayor and will treat you well. True, you have called him bad names, but he don't care a fig. If you will go today, I will show you the canceled check for $25, given in 61, for a horse purchased for the colonel of the first regiment of volunteers raised in the state that went to defend the national capital at Washington. I know that it was paid because it passed through my hands and went for that purchase. Charlie Andrews, then mayor of the city, good man, paid two dollars. Good for Charlie, but it wouldn't buy much horse, so the horseman said at the time. Come, Mose, let us smile and then laugh at the absurd pretensions of your candidate for mayor, who claims all the friendship toward the soldier. Charlie claims that Republicans gave the soldiers the right to vote in the army. I know that they were compelled to vote for Republicans or go into the ranks. They compelled the sick soldiers to go home and vote or go to the front without regard to his fitness for active services in the field. You claim all the friendship, too, for soldiers who received bounties to take the place of your sons who were drafted who refused to allow these soldiers the privilege of giving ten cents each of their own hard-earned money to buy a sword for their old commander, Little Mac. Mose, you know how near your brave little General S., as well as my old commander, General Sedgwick, came to losing their heads on account of this ten-cent contribution for a present to Little Mac. Your loyal candidate for police justice was striking him in the back in the public square under the pretense of helping raise new troops, which was mean and cowardly to assail the best leader the army ever had. Mose, we recollect these things. Let us act accordingly tomorrow. Ex-Colonel Number 2 all right, I'll tell you right now, I don't have remotely enough time to unpack all this, but I can give you at least a little bit of context. First, Moses Summers, the guy he was directing the letter to? Moses Summers was born in Ireland in 1819. He was brought to the U.S. by his parents at the age of one. He started working for the Syracuse Standard in 1841 and became an editor in 1848. He was an ardent abolitionist who put his money where his mouth was in a way few people did. In 1851, when an escaped slave named Jerry was captured and brought to court in Syracuse, he was one of three men who rescued him. He was indicted for the offense, but never tried. In 1862, he joined the Union Army as quartermaster of the 149th Regiment. During the war, he wrote letters back home that were published in the Standard under the heading Sword and Pen. At the end of the war, he resumed his editorial position at the Standard. Now, the writer also refers to the Republican candidate for police commissioner. That's Patrick Corbett. He was born in Ireland, but so far I haven't been able to find when. He was well known as a gifted orator, and he spoke at a remarkable array of political events in support of Ireland, the Irish in the United States, and the Republican and Union causes. Judging from all the newspaper articles I found, he must have been one of the most influential Irishmen in New York State during the Civil War and Reconstruction. He was also a member of the 51st Regiment of the New York State National Guard. Summers and Corbett are an excellent example of a current that I feel running strong through the pages of the papers I've been reading. There was a massive wave of Irish immigration just before the Civil War, so many Irishmen served together during the war and then organized politically around that shared experience. 
Thus, the immigration and the war brought the Irish into the burgeoning political machine of that time. Oh, and not for nothing, remember the Cole Hiscock murder I mentioned in episode 8? While I was researching Summers and Corbett, I got a huge shock when I found an article on that murder case and found out that they were literally standing right next to Hiscock when Cole shot him in the head. I've included the article in the show notes. Note that Hiscock, Corbett, and Summers were all attending the Republican convention at Albany when the shooting occurred. For now, though, just note the narrative the Courier editor establishes in his attempts to take them down a peg. He addresses Moses Summers as one ex-soldier to another, presents Summers and Corbett as buddies with a common military experience, and says that they shouldn't be pointing fingers at others when their own behavior has not been saintly. Now, about the sword. Long story short, motherfuckers would not stop giving swords to McClellan. It was a whole thing. In 1861, the city of Philadelphia presented him with a fancy sword, and that was long before Lincoln shit-canned him. In 63, by which time he'd gone full democratic martyr, Boston did the same. Then, in the spring of 64, at this big fair in New York City, there was a contest to see whether Grant supporters or McClellan supporters could raise more money for a presentation sword. McClellan had more contributors, but the Grant people gave more money, so Grant won. Then, throughout the rest of 64, the soldiers who supported McClellan tried yet again to raise money to give him a presentation sword. That one more or less fizzled. Something like $800 was raised, and some of that went back to the contributors upon request when it became clear that it wasn't going to happen, and a little over $600 went to an orphanage in New York City at McClellan's request. Anyway, the idea seems to be that Patrick Corbett, the Republican nomination for police commissioner, prevented some soldiers from raising money for the McClellan sword at that time. So apparently Corbett felt strongly that distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. I can't find any article supporting that, but that seems to be the idea. Whew, that was a lot of context. Now, on with the rest of the articles. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Oh yeah. A card of thanks. Our thanks are due to the organs of Negroism for reminding the people who are the true authors of the burdens under which they are now bending and from which they seek some escape. It is they who, after having hurried the people into a war for the Union, now that it is over, have successfully sought to prolong its passions and its expenditure, and have prevented the real restoration of the Union, in order that they and their adherents might retain place and power. These are the men, and they only, who are responsible for our present miseries. But what care they, so they thrive, and the Negro rules? This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Yeah. The record of Charles Andrews, citizens of Syracuse, when you are asked to vote for Charles Andrews, recollect that his election will be proclaimed as an endorsement of the destructive policy which, in common with his party, he advocates. Recollect that he is in complete sympathy with the extremist of the men whose god is the Negro. Remember that during the canvass of last fall, he openly declared that support for the revolutionary measures of Congress would be found, if not within, 
than outside of the Constitution. Remember, too, that in the Constitutional Convention in which he now holds a seat, he not only voted for Negro suffrage, but against its separate submission to a vote of the people. Hugh here. In both the preceding article and the next one, the writer references voting. That won't make much sense without some context. When the writer talks about voting, he's referring to the attempts to ratify constitutions in the rebel states. The newspapers have been full of stories about this, and it sounds like chaos. Most of the spotlight fell on Alabama elections, which exemplified the problems inherent to Reconstruction. The government wanted the southern states back in the Union, but they couldn't just let them back in as though nothing had happened. Those states had just fought a war against the Union. The North wanted Reconstruction to look as legitimate as possible, which meant obeying existing laws. But civil war had never happened before, which meant they were in uncharted territory. As it turned out, this gave the ex-rebels some cheat codes. For instance, in Alabama, the problems were not limited to intimidation and propaganda aimed at both black and white voters. There was also the problem of the minimum number of votes required for the state constitution to pass. This meant that, in order to scuttle any attempt to ratify a new constitution, all the ex-rebels in Alabama had to do was not vote. So, the newspapers during the week leading up to this election are full of congressional proceedings aimed at changing the law so that only a majority of voters in the state would be required to pass the new Alabama Constitution. I included a bunch of the articles in the show notes. Check them out. It's interesting stuff. Anyway, this is the context within which the Courier is calling out Republicans for not letting people vote. Uh, Jules, what's up? You look like you're about to bust at the seams. This is some fucked up, this is some fucked up, this, this, this is some fucked up, fucked up, fucked up repugnant shit. I wholeheartedly concur. And here we go. The platform of Charles Andrews. Negro suffrage. The denial of the right of the people to vote upon it separately. The Freedmen's Bureau and free rations for the Negroes of the South and military rule for white men. Disfranchisement of whites. A consequent $20 million monthly increase of the public debt. Negro conventions, congressmen, governors, legislatures, and in future a Negro president and vice president. Negro equality. Negro balance of power. Negro rule. The South, a San Domingo in the exclusive possession of Negroes. The dead past and the living present. The Negro suffrage organs in vain seek to divert attention from the vital issues of the present by arousing anew the passions of the dead past. They cannot thus escape. The interests of the present are too momentous and absorbing. The question before the people of Syracuse in the election of tomorrow is not whether, as General Greene believed in 1861, the war might and should have been avoided, and all the evils and burdens which it has imposed on us averted, but whether, in 1868, as the Democrats claim, we should deliver the South over to the tender mercies of the Negro, to be made another St. Domingo, 
whether we shall have Negro congressmen, Negro governors, Negro legislatures, and hereafter a Negro president or vice president, as we already have Negro constitutional conventions. Whether we shall continue, year after year, to spend many millions of the hard-earned money of the North in maintaining in indolence the Negroes of the South, these and other kindred ones are the questions upon which the people are now to pass, but from which the African party would fain flee away. Upon these, the real issues of the day and the hour, General Green will tomorrow be elected mayor. Democrats, citizens, act, act in the living present, thought within and God or head. Why General Green should be elected mayor? General John A. Green, Jr. was nominated unanimously at the late convention, which was attended by a larger number of delegates and citizens than was ever seen at any convention for the nomination of municipal officers in the city of Syracuse. He should be elected because he represents the democracy in the struggle between radicalism and conservatism between anarchy, liberty, and union, between corruptive lavishment and financial economy of government, not only in the state, but in the nation. This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Yeah, it sure is. Politically, General Green differs from his opponent, Mr. Andrews, by being a positive man, asserting his views on all questions, while Mr. Andrews is known as a negative man, scarcely ever giving his opinion on public affairs until he is sanguine which way is most popular with the masses. The friends of Mr. Andrews boast that he was nominated because, by being a negative man, he could bring certain personal popularity into the canvas, and thus avoid the obnoxious dogmas of his party, which, however, we see the people everywhere are voting down, together with the most popular radical candidates, a fate Mr. Andrews will surely meet. Both radical organs here attack General Green for being a compromising Democrat during the war. Tis true the general then advocated liberty of speech. Did Mr. Andrews? General Green advocated the non-subversion of the civil to the military power. Did Mr. Andrews? General Green protected the press in the free exercise of its opinion. Did Mr. Andrews? General Green advocated the writ of habeas corpus. Did Mr. Andrews? No, he acted and voted with the radicals against all these fundamental principles of government, which General Green always asserted in strong terms. While Mr. Andrews was popular then for being wrong on these questions, can his friends claim he is popular now when time has confirmed General Green to be right then and now? Mr. Andrews is a radical. General Green is a conservative. Mr. Andrews believes in a Negro government. General Green believes in a white man's government. Mr. Andrews opposes the southern states coming into the Union, unless on the basis of Negro suffrage. General Green favors their admission immediately, only on their oath of allegiance. Mr. Andrews is in favor of a standing army over the South, while General Green is opposed to it in order to stop millions of annual debt being added to an already overburdened, tax-ridden people. Mr. Andrews is in favor of non-taxing bondholders. General Green is in favor of their being taxed and the bonds paid off by greenbacks. 
that rich men should receive greenbacks in payment of bonds as well as poor men for their labor. Those and a hundred other no less important questions before the country Mr. Andrews is wrong upon and which affect every citizen. As a financier, no one can claim but that General Green is far superior to Mr. Andrews. General Green is a heavier taxpayer and far deeper identified with the business interests of the city. Hugh here. Hmm, the media saying we should elect a scumbag because he's good for business? That doesn't sound at all familiar. My, my, how times have changed in the last 150 years. <sighs> Continuing with the article. Personally, neither radical paper here dares to speak a word against the private character of General Green, nor would we desire to throw a stain upon Mr. Andrews. Both candidates are beyond reproach in their moral characters, but while the radicals would make Democrats believe Mr. Andrews is more popular than General Green, we ask wherein. Both are equally good citizens. Then why should Democrats throw away their votes upon a radical when a representative Democrat is in the field, a man of acknowledged ability, one, too, who stands up for democratic principles, fodder or no fodder, who only lends his name and influence to achieve for us a victory. He asks no office for himself. Let us win the victory by securing his election. Mr. Andrews has held various offices and is now after another to aid the radicals. Let us not be deceived by any such dodge, but come out squarely and stand by General Green and triumph over the unscrupulous radical horde in this city, who have put up Mr. Andrews as auxiliary in carrying out their plundering schemes and extreme political views which have already ruined the nation. Let every past dissension, every prejudice be buried and march up united for the whole ticket, that we may rejoice with our sister cities in the splendid victories they are piling up in the Democratic Pyramid. C.B.A. Hugh here again. The following article is the most inscrutable of the bunch. Pay special attention and maybe you can help me make heads or tails of it. Oh, and remember that Senator Doolittle is the guy who gave that vile speech in episode one. Here we go. Senator Doolittle struck a nugget when he brought the radicals to the test of intelligent suffrage. They repudiated it at once. Greeley screams over it. He says, He would allow the pure black of Africa who can do little reading and spelling to be set over the octoroon who counts half a dozen Democrats among his ancestors. He would promote black men that spells over the Caucasian that does not. Mr. Doolittle ought surely to add those who have any portion of white blood. Again, shall we set a higher value on reading, real estate, soldiering, or white blood than on piety? By no means. Mr. Doolittle must add to his qualifications all who are zealous in prayer or gifted in exhortation. Hugh here. Again, we lose a couple of lines, and starting again at the top. Party meant any such thing. They have all along been determined to throw the whole mass of ignorant plantation negroes upon the ballot box and crowd out the intelligence of the South. They have done it, and Senator Doolittle has brought them to the test and forced them to acknowledge their true position. 
they have professed to be friends of intelligent suffrage, but hiss it down when it comes before them in the shape of law. Greeley, who is not ever pious and does not exhort in religious meetings, but is shockingly profane, swearing unreasonably when he gets offended at anything, makes a fling at Senator Doolittle, who does not use profane language, but is a Christian gentleman. Hugh here. Okay, so as you probably know, Horace Greeley was one of the most well-known abolitionists of the time. So, the thought that he would have said that is difficult to believe, especially since I've done a lot of digging and I can't find a single reference to it. I keep meaning to call the Horace Greeley house, but they're only open on Thursdays, and every Thursday I forget, so hopefully I'll find out more about that soon. In any event, this looks to be a bit of baseless propaganda by the Courier, but I could be totally wrong. My best guess is that this refers to Doolittle's attempts to institute impartial rather than universal suffrage. In other words, in the state's pending reintegration into the Union, not Every male would be allowed to vote, but voting requirements would have nothing to do with race. Yeah, we all know that that works out really well, don't we? Anyway, supposedly Greeley said this ugly stuff in response to that, and I just can't find anything about it. So hopefully I'll have more to report on that in an upcoming episode. Oh, and check out the show notes for an article about the congressional proceedings in which Doolittle vetted that idea. Anyway, on to the final Courier article. Pay special attention to the rhetoric here, because after I read it, I'm going to read another article that's going to sound very familiar to you. Our candidate for mayor. It is surprising how materially views vary when seen from different standpoints, by different eyes. Mr. Curtis, in Prue and I, makes one of his characters, Mr. Titbottom, look at landscapes in a very peculiar manner, by putting down his head and regarding the prospect between his knees. The effect is novel and reminds one of the way radicals look at the past and present state of affairs. The facts are the same, as when seen by an unprejudiced observer, but they throw over truth the glamour of misconception, which totally changes the general effect. We notice in the Standard of February 17th an article illustrative of the system of looking through the knees and seeing things upside down. In speaking of the two nominees for the mayoralty of Syracuse, it bursts forth as follows. There is no man in all this city so mole-eyed as not to see, so thick-headed as not to understand, that the name of Charles Andrews is synonymous with the loyalty, the patriotism, the progressive tendencies of the Republic, and that the name of John A. Green, Jr. stands for all that sympathizes with treason and is instinct with disloyalty. Neither of the names are new ones. We all know them well, and we are all gifted with memories. The standard is generous enough to admit that the private character of General J. A. Green is irreproachable, but declares him, as a public man and a nominee for municipal office, to be a traitor, a dangerous accusation to be made, unless well-founded, against a man as widely known and respected for his loyalty to the original Constitution and his firm resistance to the infringements of the rights of a people. 
He was not opposed to the national cause, but he was opposed to the war, to the bloodshed and devastation which he foresaw would be the result of attempting to cause a people to resign the rights they were constitutionally entitled to hold. Craven peace was never solicited by General Green. Justice was demanded. How contradictory the standard is. For, in only the next sentence, it declares General Green to be bold and defiant in the enunciation of his sentiments, not pretending to be what he was not, loyal to a reign of oppression, but a copperhead, a leader of Democrats. According to our views, nothing but bravery unequaled could have enabled a man to hold such a position as John A. Green has undeviatingly occupied during the last eight years, knowing, as he did, that liberty and life were in constant danger. Active he is, but certainly not unscrupulous. Had he not been strictly conscientious, nothing could have been easier than to follow in the footsteps of noted politicians and change his priorities for conscience' sake. The Republican Party would scarcely have declined the services of the brave but indiscreet leader of misguided people. General Green was true to his party. He was, and is, the representative of democratic principles— Truthful to his constituents during the mighty struggle, it would be worse than base in that party to desert their leader now. Peace and justice is the cry of a stricken land, and who so well can create peace and administer justice as he who strove in 1861 to prevent peace from falling into the hands of oppression and justice from becoming a martyr in might? The standard declares... Their nominee is unexceptional in every sense of the word, and is emphatically an exponent of their principles. That may be true, but perhaps from our standpoint should we look at loyal Andrews through the views of prejudice, we might see as glaring imperfections as the standard has seen in General Green. But as we have confidence in our ultimate success, we can afford to be generous and leave vituperation and misrepresentation for those who so sadly used such weapons to ensure success. Peace we want, and peace we must have, and to obtain that end, advocates of peace must fill our public offices. Democratic citizens of Syracuse, show that you appreciate the bravery and fidelity of your fellow citizen, General John A. Green, who is so widely known and respected, not only in this state, but throughout the Union. Give him your votes, humiliate the radicals, and take one step towards electing a Democratic president who will restore the Union and respect the rights of the people. Hugh here. I'm going to repeat the first two paragraphs. It is surprising how materially views vary when seen from different standpoints, by different eyes. Mr. Curtis, in Prue and I, makes one of his characters, Mr. Titbottom, look at landscapes in a very peculiar manner, by putting down his head and regarding the prospect between his knees. The effect is novel and reminds one of the way radicals look at the past and present state of affairs. The facts are the same as when seen by an unprejudiced observer, 
but they throw over truth the glamour of misconception, which totally changes the general effect. So, I was curious about what that referred to, so I did some googling of key phrases, and look what I stumbled upon. This is from the Atlantic Monthly of December 1867. Mr. Curtis, in his charming book, Prue and I, speaks of the novel effect of landscape which Mr. Titbottom got by putting down his head and regarding the prospect between his knees. And we suppose that most ingenious boys, young and old, have similarly contemplated nature, and will understand what we mean when we say that the world shows to much the same advantage through the books of Southern writers. Especially in Southern histories of the late war is the effect noticeable. The general outline is the same as when viewed in the more conventional manner, with ideas and principles right side up. The objects are the same, the events and results are the same, but there is a curious glamour over all, and the spectator has a mystical feeling of topsy-turvy, ending in vertigo and a disordered stomach. The present book is in the spirit of all other subjugated literature concerning the war, a vain, glorious, and boastful spirit as to events that led only to the destruction of the political power of the South, a wronged and forgiving, if not quite cheerful, spirit as to the end itself. Vivid and powerful presentation of facts would not perhaps be expected of an author who calls herself a Richmond lady. And there is nothing of the sort in the book. It contains sketches of public rebels in civil and military station washed in with the raw yellows, reds, and blues of southern eulogy. And there is a great deal of gossip concerning private life in Richmond, where everybody appears to have spoken and acted during the four years of the war as if in the presence of the photographers and shorthand writers, and with an eye single to the impression upon posterity. It is an eloquent book and, need we say, a dull one. Yup, the Courier writer for sure lifted his rhetoric from that article. And I love being able to know this. I love that I can Google a key phrase and find out that this guy 150 years ago, writing for the Courier, was sitting at his desk trying to figure out what to write, and he thumbed through this two-month-old copy of the Atlantic Monthly and found a dog-eared page that he had made that way because the phraseology caught his ear and he wanted to use it. And this was his opportunity. So he reparsed it a little bit and used it to serve his needs. It's especially satisfying to see how a copperhead journalist stole from an anti-Southern point of view. It just goes to show how both sides plunder any rhetorical source for their own ends. Well, that's it for this episode. Boy, what a monster that was. But wasn't that gratifying? I hope you enjoy my sharing my process with you. Let me know what you think on Facebook, Twitter, you know, whatever. I'll be back next time with articles from the day of the election. Until then, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh!
the air with the greatest of ease. A daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please. And my love he stole away.